What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Rachel Loeb. Rachel is the president and CEO of the New York City Economic Development Corporation. The NYC EDC is a mission-driven nonprofit organization that works on behalf of New York City to invest in neighborhoods to address longstanding community needs. The EDC drives the development of sustainable infrastructure like affordable housing and open space, and also oversees initiatives to create jobs and lead innovation to strengthen the city. So Rachel served previously as the COO of the New York City EDC. And before that, worked at the Worldwide Group and Avalon Bay. And she's also an MIT alum like me. And we'll be talking today about the Bronx Point Project, which broke ground earlier this year. It features 542 units of affordable housing, a waterfront esplanade, 10,000 square foot of retail, and also the Universal Hip Hop Museum. So we'll put this project into the context of all of Rachel's work at the New York City EDC and talk about her particular style of leadership. So all that said, thank you so much for being with us, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So one of your first major work experiences actually wasn't in the United States, or I believe it wasn't in real estate either. It was uh, in Vietnam. Could you tell us about that? So it was kind of in real estate, very much so, but it was in Ho Chi Minh City, just outside of Ho Chi Minh City in a uh, new community called Saigon South. And Saigon South is a master planned new town development south of Ho Chi Minh City, which in an area of um, undeveloped land. And it was a public-private partnership, side being the Ho Chi Minh City government and the private side being a, an investment arm of the Kuomintang Party, actually, from Taipei, from Taiwan. So it was a joint venture between the Taiwanese government and the Vietnamese government through an investment arm. And it was a land for infrastructure. The city contributed the land, and the Taiwanese brought the know-how, the planning, and the money to create the infrastructure. And then they either built the vertical development themselves or brought in third parties to develop schools, housing, everything that you need in a city. The master plan was done by Skimmer Owings and Merrill out of their San Francisco Urban Design Office, also in partnership with Kenza Tange's office from Japan. And so it was seeing a plan start on a piece of competition 
and then on a piece of paper and then realize in three dimension. And now there's like thousands of people living there and working. And so it's quite amazing to see that it actually can happen. And how many years uh, were you in Vietnam? I was there, I lived there twice, once as a student undergrad for just about four months. And then again, after college for about four and a half years. And then you eventually found your way back to the United States, going to MIT for a graduate degree in urban design and planning, and then to Avalon Bay and worldwide companies. What did you like best about those roles and what did you learn in those roles there? So I first worked for Avalon Bay here in the New York City office and and the New York City office at the time was focused on, they called it mid-high development because Avalon Bay was had traditionally been a a wood frame, more suburban developer. And they had started to grow their urban business. And so they had hired a team of people who had experience building not just block and plank and not just wood frame, but actual high-rise development. And so we had the New York City metropolitan area, even a little bit of the New Jersey waterfront and Westchester was our territory. And what was great about, it was almost like graduate school again but in how to build a building because you had incredible, they were vertically integrated. So you had the asset management division, you had the operations team, you had marketing, you had leasing, you had development, you had investments and you had construction. And so you learn from all of these people. And so I, you know, by the end of putting together, you know, learning how to develop 3,000 units of housing over a very short period of time, you really learn how to put together a building. You learn all the different stages. And while it's similar, each site, each condition, each jurisdiction, white developing in White Plains is very different than developing in New Rochelle is very different from developing in Manhattan and is different than developing in Brooklyn. And sometimes we did fee development and sometimes we did ground leases and sometimes we did air rights and sometimes they had affordable housing. So you learned all these different things. So it was an incredible opportunity to really learn how to be a developer. The thing that I wasn't learning there, and which is why I left, was that as in the REIT structure, I didn't have to raise debt and equity. I just had to go to the investment committee. And you only do one product type. I mean, you do some ground floor retail, but it's really one product type. So going to Worldwide, which was a private company where instead of at Avalon Bay, you're kind of an asset looking for the right site. You could get back to sort of best and highest use. Like what? here's the best site. What should I do with it? There wasn't a brand. So you could figure out exactly what you wanted to do and create whole cloth, a vision for a project. You could also sell it. <laughs> you could change your mind. You could do different things. And you had to, I had to go and get the equity, get the debt, do a lot of the JV partners structure and all. So, and I was looking at hotels and retail and all sorts of different. So it was kind of rounded out that development experience. So given that that second experience that you described opened up your purview of the things that you could do and the possibilities that you had, do you feel that was a very good transition to working in the public sector where I'm guessing there's similar kind of a wide array of opportunities to base, based on the situation? I mean, in both cases, both at Avalon Bay and both at, at Worldwide, I would say the business model was looking for opportunities and that you can make money and create opportunities out of things that aren't easy. And looking for the hard stuff, looking for those knotted balls of yarn and trying to untangle them. And often, for better or for worse, that means 
working with the public sector, answering our fees, doing more complicated things. So I would say that both of those, in both cases, I'd already been working with different aspects of the New York government in those kinds of things. So I knew it was out there. But as a planner and even going back to Vietnam, it was always something I was interested in. Excellent. And so the for our listeners who may not be uh, that familiar with the New York City EDC, so it's a nonprofit and works on behalf of the city of New York to encourage economic development. So particularly post uh, Sandy, that focus has been on boosting the economy through life sciences and tech. Could you talk particularly why you think those are important to New York City and particularly post pandemic, why those are important? Sure. So one of the things that, and I would give credit to the uh, Bloomberg administration for starting this, is that if you go back, you think about New York City's historic economies and economic agendas are very much tied up with finance. And so the need to diversify the economy and make it more resilient to withstand shocks to that system, whether those shocks be economic, like a, a recession, a financial crash, whether they be a climate-impacted crash, having as much resilient, diverse economy is good for the city. It's also good for creating different pathways of opportunities for New Yorkers. So the way we, when we look back at those past year and a half, if COVID and the pandemic taught us anything, we recognize that there's really no economic health without public health. And so we were fortunate that the work that we had done in already in life sciences made sure that we had a network of life science relationships, but also interestingly, our our traditional industries pivoted on a dime, like the fashion industry, and to be able to make PPE. If you can recall, when we didn't have enough PPE, people making gowns, people making face masks. These were people who were making clothes for Broadway just days before. Until we had a virus, until we had the vaccine, it was our testing policy that was actually helped us keep COVID under control to the extent we could. And science, right? And so we, when we couldn't rely on the federal government to provide enough testing, again, we said we can do it ourselves. And it was those relationships with the academic world, the private sector and science that we brought together, as well as tech to create our solutions locally, all the while putting people back to work at the same time. So we made the test kits locally. They were assembled in Brooklyn and East New York. They were the the material that transports the test was came from Montefiore and then assembled in East New York using robotics that was created here as well. So it was like all the boroughs coming together, all the different technologies. And so as we came out of it, we created and we're on the street right now with an RFP that we want to make sure that New Yorkers are safe and healthy and prepared. So we launched the Pandemic Response Institute. We, as a, a lesson, we brought leaders from healthcare, academia, and life sciences, techs and tech sectors too, all together, groups that normally don't talk to each other, to think about how we can address not only pandemic and preparedness, but really health, the next health emergency, 
and how we can do that through an equitable lens. And so we are New York City because we think of our diversity, of the leadership, of our, that we should be a leader in this. And this is something we can, in wartime, everyone's scrambling. And it's in peacetime, we need to be prepared for the next thing, as well as addressing the next issue. So coming out of the, we launched that. We also, the mayor recently announced a doubling down of our investment in life sciences from 500 million to a billion dollars. And partly there's a few things. One is before our focus had really been around therapeutics and medicines and advancing. I don't know if you know this, but the research, the New York City is on par with Boston and San Francisco area on NIH grants. But after the science is invented, it leaves. So we've always been trying to figure out how to grow it and keep it here and, and, and address those. But as as we saw, just like the first responders, just like the hospitals, people were still going to work every day. The labs were always open. The scientists were always there. So looking at also economies that are rooted to New York City are, is important. But in addition, we see the intersection of life science, not just in a silo by itself, but as we look to invest this next half a billion dollars, we're looking at the intersection of biomaterials, med tech, making things here. The same thing around materials that can also address the climate issues, alternatives to palm oil or things that are um, detrimental to the earth. So we see that nexus or t- health tech, like big data. So the, the incredible progress that we've made around tech over the last 20 years to make New York City a leader, we see that supporting not only life sciences and health, but also our other large focus is on climate change. So it sounds like you're keeping yourself busy then. So <laughs> I think what the, what's so fascinating about the New York City EDC is the mandate that it has and how it touches so many aspects of uh, the city's life and its economy. So the project that we'll be talking about uh, today is the Bronx Point Project, and it's located in the lower concourse, an area that has a neighborhood assets like the Lincoln Hospital, Hostos College, and the Bronx Terminal Market. And it's also a neighborhood that went underwent a really successful rezoning in 2009 to allow for more commercial development, more economic activity, particularly along the waterfront. So could you talk about the needs that the New York City EDC saw in this next wave of projects that are happening there and how the larger context of the Bronx Point project works? So I think that if you were to look around cities around the United States, not just New York City, there has been over the last... 20 years, maybe a little more, like a re-turning back to our waterfronts, right? We, there, and re-envisaging what a waterfront can and should be for the community and engaging in them. We sort of industrialized them, turned our back away from them, polluted them, and now coming back. And so in different parts of the city, how do we think about our waterfronts? How do we make sure that they become an amenity and accessible to people and how do we fix the wrongs of the past? So this project represents a sort of an epitome of all of those values where you can make a transformative mixed-use development right along the Harlem River in a site that sat vacant for years. So we've been working on this intensely since early 16. And after the rezoning, 
de Blasio administration then committed almost $200 million of infrastructure because it's one thing to rezone, but if you don't put the money in there to actually upgrade the infrastructure, then you end up with people can't flush their toilets and and things getting flooded. So you've got to invest in the infrastructure along with the development. But what we tried to also do here was work with the community and listen and talk with and not to people who've lived here in this place for so long to really understand their hopes and dreams for the site. We have, we're not always perfect, but we try really hard and especially in the last 10 years to really make community engagement an essential core part of our process before any project is designed, not after, but before. So there was a two-year community process that EDC led before the RFP was released, before design was started, and with interactive workshops and community workshops. And so it really created the framework so that you, when you go out to the community, out to the development partners, they understand the expectations and the community is already bought in. And so we also set parameters around who can participate. So for example, we have MWBE high participation rates, women-led development firm as part of the development team, local hiring requirements, affordable housing, and waterfront access. So we were really proud of how this one came out. So the, this particular park project, the Bronx Point project, is a new, a new building, a new set of buildings in the context of a larger development that has started before. For our listeners, could you walk us through the stats for the project, like the number of units and the square footage? Sure. So it's not small. It's very big. It's, it's about a half, just over half a million square, uh, sorry, 500, yeah, just about a half a million square feet of development. That includes affordable housing, open space, retail, and cultural components. So in general, in in total, there'll be 1,000 units of housing. 554 units are the first phase with a variety of studios and one bedrooms, twos, and threes. So it's also about affordable housing for families, not just singles. So it was making sure that we had a diversity of income levels as well as a diversity of housing stock because these are permanently affordable homes. And there's also set aside for formerly homeless families as well and individuals. There's, you know, outdoors, a lot of outdoor spaces and laundry and children's playrooms and all the kind of typical things you would find in in an apartment building, as well as energy efficient components. But what's really exciting too is the complete restoration of the waterfront. So landscaped features, Esplanades, as well as Space for the Billion Oyster Project, which is an incredible organization and runs outdoor science programming. There's uh, 10,000 square feet of retail. We have a daycare on site, as well as the most exciting component to some, which is the Universal Hip Hop Museum. The hip hop was born in the Bronx in 19, summer of 1973. And so they are going to have their home there, which is also going to be a mecca and a destination for hip hop lovers from around the world. Like they don't, as, as they said at the groundbreaking, they don't need to go to Cleveland anymore to get inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You'll go, you'll go there to get inducted to the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. 
That was Borough President uh, Ruben Diaz that said that, right? Yeah. And then also it just has like good old fashioned, excellent real estate. It's got great access to subways. It's got great access to children's museum and community colleges and that that whole community. So really it's well located as well. And just across the river from Manhattan too. Okay. And you mentioned that this large and really kind of beautiful scope and a large amount of community engagement that predated it. So I'm guessing that a large component of the success of this was the developers that were chosen as part of that RFE process that started in 2016. Could you tell us who was that the New York City EDC selected and how that process uh, played out? So the site is being co-developed um, by L&M Development Partners and Type A Projects. Type A is a certified woman-owned business enterprise and L&M Development Partners is a long-standing, well-experienced, affordable, mixed-income and market-rate housing developer who has a long track record of building throughout the city and the region. So together, it was a very strong partnership that could meet the ability, you know, we knew they could develop, deliver, and they met other policy objectives as well as for us as well in terms of diversifying who the development team is. And then the budget that they were working with. So this is obviously a really large project. And the first phase was at $350 million. Could you talk about um, the breakdown of what those uh, in, in large buckets were used for and where the source of funding were coming from? Sure. So there's a typical capital stack of both private capital as well as funding from allocation from the housing preservation, HPD and bonds issued through HDC and Empire State. The the state's economic arm also contributed some funding. You've got private investors and then as well as city capital. So there's a very long, full capital stack that goes into these. And for our listeners, HPD and HDC are city agencies that promote affordable housing, right? And then about the design and construction process, where where were there opportunities for innovation or perhaps for trying new things in this process? Anytime you work, you work in the um, anytime you work along the waterfront, and you get an opportunity to engage in those spaces differently. So creating ways to connect the development back into the streetscape. You've got these, and sort of using kind of urban design speak for a moment, where you've got these hard edges and these barriers of actually creating these connection points so that they're also not isolated and the development's not isolated and that the community waterfront benefits that are being built are not are also not just for this development. It is for the benefit of the overall around everywhere. So making sure that those connections are well thought out and can be implemented is important, as well as, you know, when you're using public dollars, you want to try to make the project as cost effective as possible, as well as meet the latest code. So all of those are being balanced that, you know, well-designed. I mean, the landscape's going to be gorgeous. I've seen the renderings for the Esplanade. They're just spectacular and a really sensitively designed building as well. Cool. And then one thing in particular that was uh, innovative in the, the scope of the work was a food hall and a food incubator in order to promote job creation and vocational training in the Bronx Point area. Could you talk about how a, an element like that was included and, and what you hope that will accomplish? 
So these are the type of things that when you talk with the community, you learn and listen and you get ideas and meet needs and that, uh, that, you may, that may not be visible to the naked eye. And so this is kind of a perfect example of a win-win for what we try to do because it gives small small food vendors an opportunity to get their foot in the door without having to think of the high cost of infrastructure development uh, around kitchens. And But then when you pair them with someone like the who has experience of DeKalb Market, who, where this the, the operators come from, they have access to visibility and can promote them. And we've seen the sad thing that we're about the Bronx that people don't appreciate is while they are, you know, we've got the Hunts Point food market, you've got some of those like the, the, the refri- they call it sometimes the Bronx is like the refrigerator for New York City because of all the wholesale markets. And yet the access to healthy food is limited. And so wherever we can engage with the Bronx community to find opportunities to help bring local and fresh food is a win. And I'm just going to pause here for a moment to let our listeners know that we'll be having Chris Mazzola of Bijou Properties on as our guest later this season. Bijou Properties is a longtime development company in both New York and New Jersey. And Chris is a director of development as well as a fellow Hobokenite. You can subscribe to the American Building Podcast now so you don't miss out on any of the amazing conversations that we'll be having. So... You were appointed as the CEO of the New York City EDC just this May by Mayor de Blasio. Talk about the process of how you got that job. So as you mentioned, I was the COO. So I had already, I was here and I knew that our previous president and CEO who had uh, been with the administration for seven years was departing after an incredible service to the city of New York. And I saw this as an opportunity and EDC is under the purview. It reports to Deputy Mayor of Housing and Economic Development, Vicki Bean. And I sort of gave myself the same advice that I often give to other people, which is if you want something, don't think people are mind readers. And if you think you can do the job, raise your hand and lean in because people don't know. So I called her up. And I said to quote, like, I don't know if you know that I know that James is leaving, but I know. And I want you to know that I know. And (laughs) I want you to know that I'm interested if you're interested in talking to me. Kind of like one of those, just to make sure you know. And she said, well, thank I didn't know. And so, and that's how the conversation started. It is an appointed position and you have to interview, you know, with the mayor. I think that's really cool that you took the initiative to say that as opposed to wait for someone to ask you. And I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there that may be shy to let that be known or to promote themselves in that way. But I think that's something that can be can bear a lot of fruit, as this example shows. Yeah. So then you're the 10th president of the New York City EDC, and right now the city is more than 50% female, more than 50% people of color, but you're the only second woman, only the second woman to have led this agency. Why do you think that this this appointment is an important one, both for the New York City EDC as well as for the city overall? I believe that the value of diversity and that we are, and I think the, the research bears it, that decision companies, organizations, 
make better decisions when there are diversity of decisions and, and diversity of voices and diversity of opinions. And so when you have a diversity of leadership types, you're going to evolve and change and, and think about challenges differently. And so at the same time, when you have representation, it's sort of cliche, but I think it's really true, right? About when you see somebody in that seat, you then imagine that you can be in that seat. And so I have to say, like, since I've been here in terms of the people that have, I've appointed into leadership positions or the positions I've got to, I have had people come up and say to me, wow, it really, I, there's never been a so-and-so in that position before. That's like meant so much that you promoted the first person to this or like as a woman running construction or all these different things. And so when I, I've had people say like how much it means to them to see a woman in leadership and that you can do, you can lead with conviction and with strength and with kindness and, you know, and be a vulnerable leader and do all of, do and be all of that. And so I think representation matters and it matters to people and it matters to people coming up. And I think I can kind of add to that, even from the small perspective, uh, a couple of years uh, ago when I was working at Excel Development, I was a judge for the real estate competition at Harvard Real Estate Weekend. And afterwards, one of the participants in the case competition came up and said, uh, can I give you a hug? This was before before the pandemic, obviously. Can I give you a hug? And I'm like, sure, okay. And he said, just seeing you there and saying what you were saying versus all the other uh, people that were there, it made me feel that someone that looks like us can actually be in a position where what we say actually matters. So I think that was the first clue that that I realized that it may not just be this idea of this checking the box, this intuition that I had that I knew it was much more. I saw my first piece of evidence of that. And I like what you've said so far about the particular aspects that have made the Bronx Project uh, successful, because I think they're reflective of your leadership style, which is about being collaborative, about being a good listener, about understanding what people say and what they don't say, and to be vulnerable to know that it may not be that your answers are always the ones that will always be the best answers and the ones that end up going. Would you say that there are other areas of your leadership that you're particularly proud of or that perhaps you're looking to improve as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that for better or worse, I tend to bring my whole self to the office, like, I tell people, I can't go that day because I'm picking up my kids from work, from school or whatever it might be, because I want people to understand that we're all parents. We all are juggling a lot. We've all had the same challenges for this last year and a half. My experience isn't the same as your experience, but we all have our experiences and they're equally valid. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. But we need to also at the same time find some commonality. And so... I think that I try to empower the people that work for me to make decisions. And yet it was great. Like one of the first things I remember early on was someone saying, like, we really appreciate that you're asking us our opinion or what do you think? But can you just tell us what you think? You know, so we had to come up. Like sometimes we want you to make the decision. So also having that, that honest conversation, which is like, okay, when do you want me to guide you through it? And when are you asking me to just make the decision? And I've done that too. Like, I remember I used to say to James, like, so what do we do? Right? Like, 
<laughs> so being able to have that frankness with people so that they can they can also say they can feel comfortable enough to be like, could you just make the decision on this? Or can we make it together so that you understand, so that people are really clear about that. They feel empowered, but they also feel safe enough to be like, I don't know what we should do. What do you think we should do? That's really interesting that you're saying that. It reminds me of what uh, Raphael Pelli said when he was on the show a little earlier this season. There's this kind of notion that as the head of an architecture firm, particularly one that is as famous as his, that there's notion that maybe there's just one decision maker and what he or she says is just what goes. And he's consciously tried to do exactly what you're describing, which is this idea of allowing other people's opinions to be a part of the process and taking a step back and letting a decision run its course without having to put his hand on the scale all the time. And I think that ends up, what he's described as end up resulting in incredibly beautiful, incredibly successful projects. So sometimes it sounds like leadership is also about taking a step back as well, too. So cool. And the, you mentioned James Patchett as the, the former administrator of the New York City EDC. And there are certain projects that you took over, took over from the previous administration and that you're charged with completing. One thing that you mentioned uh, that is a key part is about fulfilling promises in a process that goes from one administration to the next. Could you talk about how why that is so important to you and why you think that's important to the long-term trajectory of the New York City EDC? Well, let's go back to Bronx Point as an example, right? I mean, we are working, trying to work in a community that actually feels that people don't keep their promises. So it's important for us because we don't work, we say projects, but we really work with people and we work with communities. And I think that it's very important for us if we want to continue to be able to work in these communities, that we do what we say what we're going to do. Now, is everything going to be perfect? No, like things happen. These are long-term projects. But like, if you're going to take the time to ask people what they think and then incorporate it, you got to follow through because that's how you build trust. And, and so that's why it matters because I'm just here for a little bit of time. But EDC is going to be here for a long time, and we want there's a, we have a, we want to do a lot of good work. We think, but people won't listen and don't want to engage if they think you're just going to like come and take and not give. One thing that I I was on a conversation with some real estate attorneys, and they were talking about sort of nimbyism and and anti development, and they're like, "How do you think we can change the tone?" I was like, "Do what you're saying you're going to do, and stop talking about square feet and units." talk about people, the community, the neighborhood, and then actually follow through and do because their memories are longer than yours. And that might be the first step. That's, I think it's so refreshing to hear that because that's not something that I think externally people imagine of our industry, or I think internally, even the conversations that we have as developers or people in, in, role, in development roles. I have the, the hypothesis that it ends up being the most successful projects and the ones that have uh, the longest kind of track record of success are the ones where there actually were collaborative processes, where listening actually happened and where there were defined goals and uh, those were measured and tracked over the course of the project. In a, like a small way, I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken and our projects are much smaller than the ones in New York City. Uh, there's a similar line of thought that it's the ones that are thought of and where there's promises made that end up and, and people are measuring the success by that, that those ends up being the, the most successful projects um, that we have as well. 
So one thing in particular you mentioned earlier is this goal of driving innovation within the entire of uh, New York City's economy. So particularly our industry tends to be one where we often do things the same as the way the Egyptians and the Romans um, have been doing, yet we're also the largest employer in the country, the largest contributor to the GDP. Are there ways that you want to use your office and your the strength of your role in order to drive innovation within our own industry? Yeah, we're doing that when we're trying to also do innovation through an equity lens. So one example is the tech, for example. We have, and how can government help? So tech, right, you need, you've got good ideas, but you need to test them. You need to, you need to beta them and, and you need to, you need places to, to try them out. And so what we had seen before was that a lot of that had been like the Avalon Bays, the Tishman Spires, like, oh, come and try out your fancy door latch system or help me interface with apartment communication and, and very much targeted towards the luxury market. But if you look at where a lot of the real estate is held, you know, the we, not only EDC, but the city of New York has a lot of real estate. So if we can put our real estate into play as a place for people to innovate on and innovate through, we might be able to attract a different part of the market. And so with, in collaboration with Deputy Mayor Bean and NYCHA and DCAS and EDC, we released a PropTech RFP to say, here, come, use our assets and help us help innovate solutions that are going to reduce costs but and find solutions, whether it be particularly around making buildings more energy efficient and healthier. And if you think about it, like the opportunities around NYCHA are amazing, right? They've got half a million unit, I mean, 500,000 units of housing that's like bigger than most cities and similar prototypes. So you've got repetition, you've got innovation there. So if you can find some solutions, think how many times you can scale that. So so you said 500,000 units of housing, right? Wow. That I'm, I'm pretty sure they're the largest affordable housing operator in the country, right, NYCHA? Yeah. Yeah. It's 450 or 500, something like that. Yeah. That's just that. we have, And then take the office buildings, take the schools, et cetera. So, so we want to make sure that, that prop tech, and as I talked about tech, has is also can be used to harness like certain asset types that aren't really used. And also... You know, an offshore wind is another opportunity, right, for innovation. And here, again, we are using our own assets to try to bring that along and also make sure, again, that there's this that phrase they use in the community is a just, just transition. So that is you transition away from a carbon economy to a renewable one that you make sure that everybody can participate in that. So we are also looking at creating accelerators around that. So those are just two examples of, of places where we we see opportunities to push in innovation. So many of the listeners in our audience are in the beginning of their careers in architecture school or grad school. What what advice would you have for people that plan to work in the public sector, in the private sector, but want to have a positive impact on their communities or those that hope to uh, work in the uh, public sector, but be able to have imp- like impact like they would see very quickly if they were to work at, say, like a development company? So what kind of advice would you have for kind of those two, two type of people? Well, I don't see like having an impact on your community and working in a real estate to- development company is mutually exclusive because you can always 
I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. And so if they're interested in the public sector, there's ways to sort of think about the way you develop, the way you work with your community. I mean, just because you work in DC doesn't mean you have to, is that's the only place where you can care about the community. And if you're not in the private sector, you can't. So you can start living those practices. I think there are different ways to get involved. Like you can start right away. I mean, the great thing about working in the public sector is you the volume of work and the responsibility that you have at a very young age is quite remarkable. So you're on your side and then you're negotiating with the biggest companies on the other side with very complicated transaction documents, financing structures, might be ground leases, complicated taxes and bond financing, you name it. So it doesn't get much more complicated. So at any stage of your career, it's great for just learning. And then also in real estate, you don't get that much management experience. So there's an opportunity for that too. And if uh, listeners want to learn more about the New York City EDC, what's the best way for them to do that? So we have, we are hiring. Excellent. We have positions open at various stages of people's careers. So you can visit our career page at edc.nyc backslash careers. So we have that. We have paid internships. This summer is halfway finished, but but we are always looking for people to apply and we are looking for people in our real estate. We have an incredible asset management division. I mean, we manage 66 million square feet on behalf of the city of New York of all diverse, all types from cruise terminals to industrial assets to ground leases under 42nd Street to the airports, you name it, uh, we got it, hotels. And so, you know, really there's, if there's anything, construction, capital planning, planning, we run a planning division, real estate. So we got it all. Excellent. And I think that's particularly what's unique about a public sector role, say for perhaps in comparison to a private sector one where you might just be focused on a particular asset type or a particular geography and just doing that again and again and again. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. If you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Uh, Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and many of our spectacular guests, just like Rachel, on what we did to make it where we are. You can grab our exclusive guide seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.